Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Yasmina El Rashidi, author of the new book, Laughter in the Dark, Egypt to the Tune of Chains. Uh, Yasmina, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on the new book. So this is a story about Egyptian politics, but it's also a story about music. Yes, the book, in a way, it's an excuse to write about politics in a, in a country and situation where it has become very sensitive to do so. And I use a genre of music called Mahraganat, which is essentially Arabic uh, hip-hop. It's inspired and grew out of American hip-hop. Um, I use that to sort of measure, take the temperature of... Um, the political stamina and the energy of a country that I think has been written off since the revolution of 2011. Yeah, this this is a very different way to tell the story. As you, as you point out at the beginning, the history of modern Egypt is generally told through the history of authoritarian leadership, so much so-called strongman leadership. So this is a very novel way uh, to approach it. What, what made you take this, this line? Um, a couple of things. I mean, the first thing was that during 2011, you know, millions of Egyptians took to the streets calling for change. Um, I was part of the, the protest movement from the very first day. And what struck me was that, which I knew intellectually, but I think being on the ground, it became visible in a very different way. What struck me is our demographics. We're a very, very young population. 60 to 65 percent of the population is 25 years or younger. Um, and what struck me at the time was that this, you know, this it is the young generation that are going to be leading the country moving forward. Um, and, and one of the things that was also very striking in the protests and in the square, in Tahrir Square, was how this creative energy that existed and how young people were beginning to sing about the situation and their their dreams and desires. And they were also beginning to do this very um, sort of spontaneous and rudimentary rap. They were rapping about what they wanted. Um, and that really stayed with me. And at the time, it wasn't yet uh, a genre and a movement in the way that it is now, but I, I started following it at that time um, until it became very mainstream, you know, some years later. Yeah, I was very struck by that generational aspect. You talk about growing up during the Mubarak uh, regime, uh, very often people would disappear. I think the phrase that you say Egyptians use is behind the sun uh, when that mm -hmm. when that happens, that this was a time when speaking out uh, could get you in jail or worse. And you talk about your own childhood, that there was a, a kind of an understanding, an atmosphere as you grew up, that you very quickly learned the cues that some subjects simply were not to be spoken of. Yes, growing up, my generation, we had a very different experience to what I see now. And actually, my first book, which is a novel, um, it sort of is really all about that atmosphere of silence. We grew up without really being told 
that's through verbal cues, you know, eye contact. We grew up to understand that most things we shouldn't speak about and that also children are to be seen but not heard. And that was, I think that was, it was, it was prevalent. I mean, it wasn't about, um, I think it cut across social class um, from, you know, the more privileged to the lesser privileged, if you will. And we grew up as a generation that was almost essentially muted. And I, I, 2011 was really my first experience. And I think from, you know, many people I know, it was the first experience of really being vocal and speaking out and beginning to feel free with our opinions and, and voices. The generation that has come after us, you know, they either came of age at that moment or for the younger generation who make up these music artists, they were sort of too young at the time, but they grew up somehow. I think it's, I think sometimes we absorb things into our, you know, into our systems and they grew up absorbing that moment and they don't have any of those fears. They're free, they're vocal, they're uninhibited. Um, they're really fearless. The barrier of fear that was broken for us, I think during the revolution, it has become who they are. It's a very different media environment too. When you were growing up, there were uh, two TV channels. It was a very carefully curated uh, worldview by the Egyptian government. Uh, that's very different to the experience of 2011 and the Egyptian revolution, which uh, I suppose in some ways famously was the, the first Twitter uprising. Absolutely. I mean, we we didn't have access to anything. <laughs> you know, now these, these, I call them kids, they're also, you know, young adults. But the kids, they have access to everything. They are so exposed. They're so knowledgeable. They have very strong ideas about things. You know, the same um, social media platforms that the West is using are the ones that we have access to here. And so there's no sort of hiding. You can't, you can't even begin to control what they have access to, even though our government, you know, is known to have blocked many websites and applications. But still, you know, there are certain things like TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, those things, Snapchat, I don't know if it still exists, but um, those things can't be controlled. They can't be contained. I mean, it's, it's fascinating in, in so many ways because the way that you describe this here, that previously there'd been this undertone of silence that was passed from generation to generation, that I think uh, fairly early on you talk about towing the line but knowing how not to step over the line. Then you get 2011, which seems to be this profound change in the in the political atmosphere. So the direction of travel seems in very clearly in one direction. But then you bring us up short by pointing out that actually today, in many ways, political repression um, is perhaps at its worst point in modern Egyptian history. So why is that? And how do you explain that contradiction for us? I mean, Egypt is now, I would say, at its most repressive point um, in its modern history. And that's, you know, uh, the ways that that repression is, is unfolding or being utilized is in arbitrary arrests. Um, if, you know, people posting things on TikTok or on Facebook, um, things that 
have not necessarily always been seen as red lines, but in this environment where the government is trying to control um, a political status quo, I believe that they are weary of any kind of action or movement or message that gains mass um, or large support and following. So if you post um, a, a video on YouTube or on Facebook and it goes viral, that's that's quite threatening because it means you have a certain kind of following. So you could technically mobilize the kind of protest or you know, movement that the government is fearful of. Um, and I think, you know, what happened in 2011 is that regardless of what anyone says, some people say, oh, yes, this was coming. You know, everyone felt that there was an atmosphere that was shifting in the country. You could feel it in 2010. There was this tense atmosphere, you know, people were on edge. There was a lot of, you know, um, a lot of sort of aggression around elections. Something was shifting. But nobody really knew, and I don't think anyone really expected, that on January 25th, 2011, tens of thousands of people would go down in the streets that way. And that three days later, there would be millions. And the unknowingness of that, and the not knowing or not being able to explain the exact dynamics and the final trigger, or the final straw, I think is very scary to any government that is trying to keep control. And so anything that could potentially be a threat or could potentially unleash mass movement or protest um, is immediately cracked down on. And so even things like literature, you know, um, a chapter in a novel, a video, um, you know, someone dancing on TikTok with, you know, certain messaging. I mean, people have gone to jail for all these kinds of things. On the flip side, of course, there are certain things that you can't control. You know, when a song is, is, is streamed online and becomes popular, how on earth are you going to control millions of young people listening to the song? How can you remove that song from the internet at large? Um, so it's just, it's just, you know, sort of catch-22, I would say, for the, the current government. I mean, it creates an atmosphere where I don't think Egypt can be written off as it has been. You know, there's this idea that um, the revolution is dead. You know, people aren't active. They're repressed. You know, yes and no. You say that the revolution uh, is dead and that part of the reason for that is because the president has said that uh, he will never allow what happened in 2011 to happen again. And uh, LCC has given strategic reasons for that as well, that he doesn't want Egypt to become like Syria or even to repeat the, the chaos of the Muslim Brotherhood's rule. What's the, what's the reaction to that line of argument uh, in Egypt, particularly as it's something that some commentators in the West have repeated and even said that he's right, that that's the lesson of regime change in Iraq and Libya, for example? I mean, I'll say something that I know makes me unpopular in certain circles, but I, you know, I think, I think that I would say that the majority of people, of Egyptians, don't want to re repeat 2011 because it brought 
so many years after upheaval. And now when people reflect on 2011, um, they feel that they are, we are much worse off than before. And, you know, that the, the devil, you know, is better than the devil you don't. But we, I mean, Egypt right now is in its worst economic crisis in its modern history. Our currency has, you know, been devalued. Uh, it was, you know, it was pegged to the dollar. It was 18 pounds about a year and a half ago. It's now um, 30 pounds. Inflation is extremely high. People feel that they can barely afford to live. Everyone is affected, including the more privileged. Um, and so nobody wants the kind of instability that will impact the economy further. I think what people would like, though, what people would like is to feel that there is a bit of space for expression. There is space for creative expression and freedom. They'd like to feel that as um, constituents, that their voices are being heard and are being taken into account. And they don't feel that that's happening right now. And there's a there's a contradiction there, isn't there, that you make clear in the book that on the one hand, one of the ways in which uh, the government is able to exert its authority uh, is through the role of the army in society. Uh, and yet the army is so centrally connected to the role of how or to the way in which the economy works. So because the army takes so many opportunities, it thwarts entrepreneurship and in many ways sets the economy back. So that contradiction between economic poor performance and the authority of the army in the state, those two things are definitely connected. Absolutely. And that I think that's the one thing that everyone agrees they would like to see change, um, including, you know, international organizations like the IMF, which has been giving us money, loans. You know, the army needs to sort of withdraw from the economy. You know, historically and I guess internationally, their role is to protect the borders. Um, and now they are, they're managing essentially every aspect of the country and namely the economy, which is impacting private business. Um, and also there's a huge infrastructure project currently being, you know, implemented on Egypt, um, which includes new capital, it includes new roads, highways, a monorail, trains. And on the one hand, some of it seems important, uh, on the other hand, some of it doesn't feel as urgent and as pressing as other things like the healthcare system or education. Um, and I think that people would like to feel that their immediate needs are being addressed and that certain other things like, you know, the new capital with its biggest mosque and church and skyscraper in the world, that those things could wait so tell us a bit more uh, about the music. Why is it that that hip hop has been able to evade uh, much of the clampdown by the government? That they've been able to sing about taboo issues like drinking, for example, that would be seriously offensive to the government. And and how has the government tried to shut them down more recently? And what kind of impact has that had? How they've managed to evade is simply. Um with this connected world that we live in. You know, a lot of these music artists, they started recording 
um, on sort of shared computers and internet cafes, uploading their music online um, on various platforms, including YouTube. And from there, it was shared, downloaded onto thumb drives, played in, you know, alleyways and out of taxis and out of um, tuk-tuks, which are like, I guess you call them rickshaws. Um, and so in that way, the music has circulated, eventually coming to the mainstream. And the mainstream in Egypt is the mainstream everywhere, which is, you know, Spotify and platforms like that, which you can't control. The government has tried to control it by banning Mahraganat in Egypt at various points, which means um, not allowing licensed venues to let um, singers perform. And it was sort of only partially worked because a lot of these singers are invited to perform at private weddings. They're invited, you know, they come from uh, a lot of them poor neighborhoods where if you go, if you have a party or a wedding, it's in the alleyway. It's it's sort of in the neighborhood, which means that everyone comes. There's no, you know, there's no gates and there's no doors and everyone is invited. Um, and so in that way, the music really can't be controlled. And even if you stop them from performing at you know, nightclubs, they will still be invited to other places. They'll still be invited to private venues. And, and of course, that's not entirely legal if something is banned. But, you know, that's sort of the way of the world, I, I suppose. And definitely one of the loveliest elements uh, of this book, much of which is dealing with very, very difficult subjects, is your full-throated enthusiasm for this younger generation, that uh, you talk about their fierce assertion of independent values, they're free in an environment that does everything it can to break, uh, to uh, break down individual freedoms. They did not cave in as my generation did, they do not swallow their words. There's, there's something really quite uplifting about that, seen from the perspective of your generation as well as theirs, I think. Yeah, I, you know, obviously I, I, I look to them with some envy because, because I wish that I had grown up in an atmosphere where I felt free really to be who I wanted to be. Um, and, and also I wonder, you know, if my generation or myself, if we'd grown up with that kind of freedom and that lack of, of inhibition, I wonder what would have emerged, you know, to this day with my writing, I sometimes find myself thinking twice and three times about something I put to the page and I've struggled with self-censorship all my life. And so I look at them and, and even though I'm a little bit fearful of what is being stirred up at times with the music, I also have a lot of admiration and, and even some envy, if I'm entirely honest. And you don't shy away, though, from the downsides of much of this and that youth culture has definitely been seen as part of the problem in Egyptian society, too. You talk about lawlessness in Cairo that's often driven uh, by youth violence. You quote a prominent TV host recently who asked, what has become of Egypt that it's so easy to kill? And that seems to be especially true of violence against young women. 
Cairo, you tell us, traditionally was a place where it was safe to walk at night, but that's no longer the case. Something has definitely changed. It's still, you know, the truth is it's still one of the safest places in the world, but it has definitely changed. And I think it's something that you see everywhere in the world. I spent, you know, a year or nine months in Paris on a fellowship and there were certain events or protests where there was a hooliganism that you would see on the streets, from, especially from young men of a certain age, that I think is a worldwide phenomena or occurrence. And the government had always contained that here. Um, young people were too scared to be on the streets and roaming around. And now they are. And so I think what happens with the music is they listen to this music and it gives them a courage. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think they're entirely to blame because they have an energy that needs to be directed towards something. And in some sense, you know, my hope would be that if this book does anything, is that the government begins to address the needs of this generation, um, both in terms of actually public space as well as opportunities. And there's, there's no question that reading this book gives the reader a very strong sense of Egypt at a fork in the road here, that the book shows this distillation of change in Egypt, the attitudes of these 65 million or so young people. And you show a kind of a future where this younger generation might generate political change, not just actually in politics, but socially, culturally, uh, economically. But then you end the book, um, perhaps in a way that's less optimistic, um, you say that there's really little chance now for a pluralistic society in Egypt. So that there definitely is a, a sense of optimism and pessimism, which is built into the narrative of the book. Well, I do feel we're definitely sort of edging towards either a breaking point or a turning point. Hmm. Um, and I think which way that goes really depends on the government and the and so also the private sector um, addressing, actually taking the time to understand these young people and understand their needs and trying to accommodate them within not just, um, you know, the business environment, but also urban space. Because when young people come out of a concert and are roaming the streets, they're roaming the streets because they don't have other places to go. Um, and they have a lot of energy. And so it's really, there's definitely, as you said it perfectly, it's a fork in the road. Absolutely. And you do end the book by sounding the alarm. Uh, you fear implosion, you say. I mean, we've seen what that looks like elsewhere in the region. Um, what would implosion look like, do you think, in a specifically Egyptian context? I don't think it would be a political energy in the way that the revolution was a political protest or took the form of a political protest. But I think it takes the form of a sort of unraveling of society and social cohesion and social order. And we're beginning to see it in different ways from, you know, it's become the norm to drive down the street um, in the wrong direction, contrary to traffic. It's become normal for motorcycles to go on pavements because it's too crowded to be on the streets. Um, it's things like that. And then eventually, of course, 
you know, petty crime, larger crime. I think that's how, if this energy is not taken into account, I think it will be a, a political unraveling of that kind. So the book is Laughter in the Dark, Egypt to the Tune of Change. It's written by my guest, Yasmina El-Rashidi, and is published by Columbia Global Reports. But for now, Yasmina, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to speak to you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.